This is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdontsay.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. Today's episode is being presented with limited commercial interruptions, but I would like you to check out our sponsors. Left Brain, Right Brain Marketing for all of your branding needs from copywriting, web design and development, graphic design, podcast development, and more. Visit online at lbrbm.com or give us a call at 503-961-3647. Again, the website is lbrbm.com. The number is 503-961-3647. If you're looking for a great remote access to your desktop, check out Remote PC. Go to youdontsay.net and click on the Remote PC ad on the Home or Episodes page and you'll save 50% on your first year. At that point in my life, the day started like any other day. I woke up in the darkness of the early morning to get on with it by heading to the gym. I had a good workout, showered, and got in the car for the three-minute drive to the light rail parking lot. It was around 5 a.m. at this point, so it was still dark out. As I rounded the corner, I had the news on, and there was a story about a plane crashing into the World Trade Centers in Manhattan. The report at the time was that it was a small plane, maybe a Cessna. Wow, I thought. That sounds pretty scary. I wondered if it would have penetrated the building or just bounced off. Well, I hoped that people on the ground were able to get out of the way and that people weren't at their desk yet. What a crazy world. I got out of my car and I walked down to the platform to await the train. The handful of folks who are as crazy as I am to be up at this early were all in their early morning fog and nobody was talking. I got onto the train to head into downtown Portland and immerse myself in whatever book I was reading at the time. I also found myself thinking back to the previous week's fun. We took our daughters out to a local renaissance fair. We were so happy to see their excitement when we took them out for breakfast before the 90-minute drive to the fair. Then we got there, and a beggar character, this huge hairy fellow who'd clearly taken a roll in the mud earlier, gave the girls a laugh because he had these little pink fairy wings on. Of course, we happened past the booth where those were being made, and naturally our six- and eight-year-old girls wanted a pair. So we hooked them up. I got wrapped up in the thoughts of how fascinated and entertained they were with the whole scene. Knights, princesses, Robin Hood types all over the place. I can't recall, but I wouldn't have been surprised if there was a unicorn sighting. Anyway, there was lots of giggles and memories, at least for me that day. Then I found my way back into the book for the rest of the ride. I got off the train to walk the last five or six blocks to the office, and I always enjoyed that little walk in the last hours of the darkness of the morning. The air was cool, and it was quiet out, so there was time to think about my day ahead. I was the vice president of a web development agency at the time. The president of the company was down in the Bay Area that day meeting with some clients, so I'd have the reins that day in terms of dealing with whatever project hiccups happened or other issues might pop up. I arrived at the office at around 6 or 6.15, the first one as usual. So I fired up my PC and set about getting a pot of coffee going. Then I settled into my desk and began working on what, again, I don't remember. But I dove in. Linda was a full-time mom at the time. By the time I hit my desk, I imagined she was getting ready for the day ahead and getting our girls Anna, who is eight, and Tess, who is six, corralled for school. Linda would be getting them along and dressed and fed and making their lunches with an eye to getting them onto the bus and off to school in a couple hours. It was just another day. On the other side of the country, in Yonkers, New York, I imagined the scene was similar to the one which my family was experiencing. 
The mother of a couple kids about the same age as our girls, Valsa Raju and her husband Raju Tankachan, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and their kids, Sonia and Sanjay, were starting their day. Though she left early for work as a rule, around 6.30, I can picture Valsa helping to make breakfast and maybe even sandwiches for the kids' lunches using slices of tomatoes she grew in the garden she was so proud of. Valsa immigrated to the U.S. in 1985 from Kerala, India, living with her sister Anama. Six years later, Valsa married her husband Raju in a marriage that was arranged by the families as was their tradition. She and Raju, on this brilliant Tuesday morning with clear sunny skies, were together for ten years and beginning to realize the promise of that better life for themselves and their two children. Valsa worked hard as a supervisor in the foreign exchange division of the company she worked for, Car Futures. All that hard work at the office and at home was important to Valsa because she wanted more than anything to be a good role model for her kids and to raise them right and help provide a better future for them. For their family, it was just another day as well. At around 7.15, the first staff arrived. We said hi to each other as he passed my office, and he went to his desk to settle in. And about 15 minutes later, he came to my office looking a little bit startled. Are you seeing what's going on, he asked. Not thinking about that news story I got a snippet of on the way to the parking lot earlier, I said no. He said a jet just crashed into the Trade Center. Holy shit, I thought. How could they have mistaken that for a Cessna? There's a TV down in the lounge, I said. Let's go see what's happening. We went down to the second floor lounge and turned on the TV. We were both dumbfounded and silent, aside from the what the fuck and holy shit, which were the only words either of us could get out. By this point, the second plane had hit the South Tower. The Pentagon was also hit. Flight 93 hadn't yet gone down in Pennsylvania. Now we were sitting down, riveted by the horror. Live images from ground zero. My stomach started doing flips. It was a nightmare. We also didn't understand the scope of what was happening, but clearly it was some sort of concerted attack. We came back to our office suite at about 8.15. I went to my office and closed the door and called home. By this time, the girls were off to school. I told Linda I'd be home in a little while and that I loved her. More folks were streaming in for the day. Some were aware of what was going on, others weren't. There was a lot of confusion. By this time, Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania, so now we were all wondering what was going to get hit next. I thought of my brothers who worked in downtown Chicago and Dallas, Texas at the time, and my sister who was down in Los Angeles. I figured my parents, who were retired, and my two other sisters, who pretty much lived out in the country in Wisconsin, were out of the bullseye. I also figured Portland probably wasn't in danger, but who knew at this point? It took a few tries because circuits were busy, but I eventually got a hold of my boss, who, as I mentioned, was down in the Bay Area. He said his return flight was grounded, as were all flights in the country by that time. I told him that I thought the best thing to do was to cut everyone loose and send them home, since at that point nobody was going to be able to focus on anything other than getting back to their families and partners. He agreed. So I went out in the bullpen and told everyone to just go home to the people you love and hug them and be with them. We'd get back to them the next morning about coming back to work. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing Valsa got onto her train to head from her home in Yonkers to Lower Manhattan at around 6.30 a.m., as was her habit. She'd have about an hour's commute, arriving at the Trade Center at around 7.30 or so. 
She joined the crowd of other folks, starting their work day as well, on an elevator that would deliver her to the office on the 92nd floor of the North Tower. Maybe she'd say hi to Bill Steckman, Bob Twomey, or Griselda James, or exchange a smile with George Yanis, Denise Gregory, or Barb Etzold. All of them just starting another day. After I talked to my boss and closed down the office, I speedwalked back to the train stop and headed home. When I arrived, there was a long, strong hug. The girls weren't home yet. Linda and I were glued to the news. I don't recall at what point in the day the girls came home, whether it was early, I think it might have been, or the regular time. When we got them inside, same thing, long hugs. I think we asked about what they were told at school, maybe. I don't remember that part clearly, just hugging them. We tried our best to keep the TV off or tuned in to only kids stuff, cartoons and after school fare. I don't recall any of the kids in the neighborhood being outside playing as they usually were. They were all most likely having a similar experiencing to what we were going through in our home. How do we talk about this? Do we say anything at this point? We didn't quite know what to do. The afternoon and evening passed. I think I was in a bit of shock and outrage by the time the girls went to bed and more than anything, just sadness. Just days ago, we had such wonderful memories with the girls, innocent memories. It made me think of the beginning of the summer when Linda and I made a Harry Potter birthday party for the girls. Their birthdays were only a week apart, and both of them were into the books. Linda dressed as McGonagall, and I was Hagrid. We did a scavenger hunt for the sorcerer's stone around the neighborhood. I carved and then wood-burned each guest their own unique wand, which we handed out at the hat ceremony. I think Linda and I had more fun than the girls. When I think of that magical summer now, it's as if that were the last summer of our kids' innocence. In the coming days and weeks, there would be no hiding the event and the horrible images from them. So we figured out how to talk about it with them, trying to reassure them that they were in a safe place and answering any questions that they might have as best we could. The day after the attack, our girls went back to school. I also went into the office, but this day I couldn't stop listening to the news as the stories began to emerge about the people on the planes. The one that hit me the hardest was that group of little kids aboard Flight 11, which hit the North Tower. All I could think about were those babies, full of excitement and heading off for a trip to Disney. The best day of their young lives, then gone in a blink. I sat at my desk crying, well, sobbing, really. As Valsa and some of her co-workers and building mates got off the elevator and headed to their desk, they couldn't have helped but notice what a beautiful day it was in New York, just like the kind of day we had out here in Oregon. All those people headed to their desks. If I were among them, I certainly would have taken advantage of the view on such a clear sunny day as I took the first few sips of my coffee. I imagine once everyone dropped their things at their desks, maybe some of them did just that. Maybe Valsa was one of them. But having read about what a hard worker she was, I imagine she didn't linger long at the window and instead went to her desk to begin her work. Then, at 8.46 a.m., just another day became a nightmare. The first airplane, the one with the kids heading off to Disney, struck the North Tower, one floor below Valsa's office. Of course, at this point in our history, we've all seen that image too many times. I've often wondered how many people in the building saw that plane coming, and I've prayed that those people, like the passengers on the plane, didn't have to suffer through the last couple of seconds and they were gone instantly. Unfortunately, we know that all too many did. At 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 struck the South Tower. At this point, there was no mistaking that this was an attack. 
34 minutes later, Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. And then at 10.02 a.m., Flight 93 crashed in a field in Pennsylvania after a group of passengers rushed the terrorists, preventing the aircraft from reaching the White House or Capitol building, the most likely targets based on the flight path. Nearly 3,000 people died that day. It wasn't just another day. The stories of heroism began to emerge in the following hours and days and weeks of all the people aboard Flight 93 who went after the terrorists, of the first responders and regular citizens who tried to help people from the towers and out of the ruins of the Pentagon, willing to risk or give their own lives to save others. I think of parents like Raju, Valsa's husband, having to talk with his young children the day of the event. The not knowing for sure and holding out hope, then, eventually, as reality sets in, how to manage to move forward. No, it wasn't just another day. That day's seared in my memory. It always will be because of the weeks in my family's life that led up to it. Some of our happiest days, and then, then the saddest of them. Thankfully, my daughters recently mentioned when we talked about it that they don't really recall the day and the days following other than that they knew something really bad happened. But the gravity of it, they didn't feel that other than seeing Mommy and Papa cry as we watched the National Remembrance Services a few days later. For several years, I've wanted to go out to Ground Zero and pay my respects and reflect on the events of that day. Once the memorial was built, I had it in my head to find a name and put it up in my home so I can see it and remember that person each day. This past spring, I finally got there. I intended to go to the memorial and then visit the museum. My oldest was with me, as my wife didn't want to put herself through that kind of thing. As we approached, the feeling was visceral. I looked up at the canyon of skyscrapers and couldn't imagine having been on the ground there while it was happening. You can't really get your head around that. I felt my emotions starting to come to the surface as we approached the memorial pond. I was choking back tears. The first name I came to had a white rose sticking out of it, Valsa Raju. I'd never seen or heard that name before, but wondered who it was that put the flower there. Of course, I took time to walk around the memorial, taking in as many names as I could, touching them. The weight of it began to come down on me but I kept reading so that I could remember some of these people who left their homes that morning for just another day. They didn't ask or want to be memorialized, but here we were. The name with the flower kept pulling me back, so that's the one I grabbed onto, as well as the few names around it that I used in the elevator scene I created. Ultimately, I didn't go to the museum, it was too much already, and I didn't want to go to the next step and see all that wreckage and the other personal items. Maybe another time. For now, I had Valsa with me, and that was enough for this visit. When I got home, I googled her name as well as several others I collected, but Valsa kept a hold on me. I don't know if it's because I discovered we were roughly the same age when she passed away and had two kids who were about the same ages as my own. I'm sure that's at least part of it. The other part of her story, as spare as it may be, is that she came to this country as an immigrant looking for a better life that she dedicated herself to her family and job for her and Raju to give those kids the best possible life. I hope and pray that Sonia and Sanjay are doing well today and living the life she was striving for for them, and that maybe even Raju has found a new partner too. Then that flower, I wondered. Was it her husband Raju, her kids Sonia and Sanjay, or her sister Anama? 
Maybe it was a grandchild. Sonia would be 30 and Sanjay 26, so maybe. And I wonder, in this world of mysteries, was that flower put there not just in remembrance of her by a loved one, but so that I could connect with Valsa and get to know a few details about her life. Someone once said to me that people continue to live as long as others remember them after they're gone. I believe that's true. And I hope that Valsa's family has a lot of people around them who remember her and that they know that even if her body isn't here, that she'll always be with and alive in them as long as they remember and that they know that now I remember her too. And I hope that they find peace and hope in that and that memories of her only bring them joy. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to You Don't Say wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your family and friends. I welcome your feedback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories and LinkedIn at Drew Zagorski. And that's me. I'm Drew Zagorski. Thanks for listening to You Don't Say. Peace.